Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. My two guests are two men who don't really need an introduction, but I'm going to do one anyway because it was so much fun to write. To the far, my far left is Paul Goldberger, who we all know and love, and we're celebrating his wonderful book. I'm a huge baseball fan, so when this book came out, I got all excited, and this is kind of why we're here today. Um, as you know, he's an architectural critic and uh, Educator, contributing editor for Vanity Fair, the Joseph Urban Chair in Design and Architecture at the New School in New York City. From 1997 to 2011, he was the architecture critic for the New Yorker and was formerly dean of the Parsons School of Design. But he began his career as the architecture critic at the New York Times, where in 1984, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Distinguished Criticism, and that's when I first started reading his work. Uh, he's written wild, widely about architecture, design, historic preservation, and, and, uh, and urban preservation. In 2008, uh, he published Beyond the Dunes, a portrait of the Hamptons. And I'm wondering, it should have been maybe behind the hedges or something like that. Uh, which he produced in association with the photographer Jake Regis. Paul's chronicle of the process of rebuilding Ground Zero, entitled Up From Zero, Politics, Architecture, and the Rebuilding of New York was published by Random House uh, in the fall of 2004, and it was just re-released in paperback in 2005, and it was named one of New York Times Notable Books of 2004. He's also written The City Observed, New York, The Skyscraper, On the Rise, Architecture and Design in a Postmodern Age, Above New York, and The World Trade Center Remembered. But as far as I know, he doesn't play baseball, but maybe I'll be pr proven wrong. Not well. <laughs> Ken Aluda has written the Annals of Communications columns and profiles for The New Yorker since 1992. Is that where you guys met, at The New Yorker? No, we've no. long before that. Long before that. Uh, he has profiled many of the leading personalities and companies in the information age, including Bill Gates, Google, Robert, Rupert Murdoch, and AOL, Time Warner. He has authored more than a dozen books, including five national bestsellers, Three Blind Mice, how the TV networks lost their way, Greed and Glory on Wall Street, The Fall of the House of Lehman, The Highwaymen, Warriors of the Information Superhighway, and World War 3.0, Microsoft and its enemies, and Googled the end of the world as we know it. It all sounds a bit apocalyptic, but um, anyway. In another life, Ken taught and trained Peace Corps volunteers, which we discovered we have somewhat in common, uh, served as special assistant to the US Undersecretary of Commerce, worked in Senator Robert F. Kennedy's 1968 campaign for presidency, was executive editor of the weekly Manhattan Tribune, was state campaign manager for Howard Samuels, helping him lose two races for governor of New York, <laughs> and was the first executive director of the New York City Off-Track Betting Corporation. <laughs> Quite an interesting career. And Ken does play baseball. And in fact, he pitched on his high school baseball team and in college. And he, beginning around 1985, he became a regular player in the annual artist and writer softball game in Sac Harbor. Uh, they're going to talk about really great things. I know we're going to have a good time. Before they get started, I have a couple of announcements. I do want to thank our presenting sponsor for our Friday night programs, Bank of America. 
also the Corkin Group and Steve and Sandy Pearlbinder. So without further ado and no phones, please welcome Ken and Paul. So my question is, why is baseball the national pastime? Ken, as Terry said, actually plays baseball. I'm a fraud. I only write about it, actually. So he may have a different answer. But I think it's the national pastime because it grew up before any other major professional sport. It, it predates the others. And there was a very conscious attempt in the 19th century to uh, associate it, to create, in effect, to really create a history for it that associated it with various presumed American virtues. And, but there, there was nothing else really to compete with it. You know, a professional, football came later, basketball developed somewhat later, soccer, of course, came to America much later. So that it actually, as a major team sport, it was the first thing that Americans got seriously interested in as this country was developing in the 19th century. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book, and this kind of is maybe as a segue to themes in the book, is that how some of that history is a little bit contrived. It was behind the creation of the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, the idea that this was this, this sport emerged as this sort of rural ideal connected to this whole notion of America as this pure rural country full of hardworking, earnest white people who <laughs> did all the right things. In fact, the history of the game is much more urban than um, is generally assumed. And in fact, issues of immigrants and race and all that are intertwined all the way through it, which frankly makes it much more interesting than that sort of supposedly official history that now I think the people at Cooperstown know better and they don't even themselves try to argue for it. But I think that's sort of why it became the national pastime. Is, so I may, you may have some, something to add, I don't know. I would actually add depressingly that it was the national pastime. I would argue it no longer is. Um, and I would argue that if you just look at what television rights go for, for baseball or basketball, or particularly football, it doesn't compare, and you look at attendance and teams that don't make the kind of money that football teams right. make. Um, I mean, I hate that because I love watching a one-nothing ball game. But many people in America feel the game is too slow, and they want a 15-11 game. Anyway. Well, well, you are you are a person of incredible discipline and patience, as all your writing shows. <laughs> so, instead of, I mean, who you know can can continue to report forever and ever to get down to a deep through you. Um, one of the things that, that, and I mean this truly as the highest compliment that your, your writing shows, is that you, know, you do not have the short attention span that afflicts America right now. You sort of get deeply into things, and that is, that is a big part of the problem of baseball now. That's true. I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. So let me, let me start, Paul, by asking yeah. you. I mean, here you are, an architectural critic, right. and yet you read your wonderful book, as I did, uh, and there's as much about baseball, and you're being much too modest about your lack of knowledge of baseball, um, as there is about architecture. Right. And say, tell us why. Well, look, look, the, the story of the book is basically when I was at The New Yorker and 10 years ago when um, the uh, new City Field and Yankee Stadium both opened, 
the only time in history that two major league ballparks have opened in the same city in the same year. David Remnick, the editor, asked me to review them as architecture, and I did. Uh, and as I was researching it, I realized that the whole history of ballparks in cities was so rich and complex that it, it was just, there was so much more in it I wanted to delve into. And so I mentioned it to both my distinguished editor and agent, and they both liked the idea. And I was at that point just getting ready to start another project for uh, Knopf, a biography of Frank Gehry. And they said, we love this idea, but don't start it till you finish this one. We want this one first. And so I put it aside, and a few years later, I um, came back to it. But I, I kind of felt you couldn't tell the story of ballparks without telling the story of the game itself a certain amount. And similarly, you couldn't really tell the story of the game without talking about cities and urbanism and places. The, 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 the great excitement for me was in discovering how baseball and the history of baseball in American cities is kind of bound together in a way that nobody had ever really paid much attention to before. And so I wanted to write enough about architecture and cities and urbanism to satisfy that side of it, but not so much that it would turn off baseball fans, and enough baseball to satisfy baseball fans, but not so much that it would turn off architecture fans and try to show that they really needed each other. So the first stadium, Brooklyn, 1862, right. Yes, as you write. Trace for us the history of stadiums and sure. how they've changed over sure, the Sure, sure. Um, well, what I call the first ballpark was Union Grounds in Williamsburg in 1862. It's not literally the first place baseball was played, but it was the first time somebody realized that people were getting kind of interested in this sport. It was getting more and more popular. It was not just for players, but it was increasingly for spectators. And that you could put a fence around a ball field and charge people money to come in, and maybe this was a going business. And so. Um, this guy, William Kammerer, who, as another um, sidelight I mentioned, was a close friend of Boss Tweed, for those who know New York's history. Um, he had an ice skating rink that was not doing very well, and he thought maybe he could sort of monetize this a little better and charge people to watch baseball games and help baseball games there. And so he created this union grounds in 1862, and it worked. And then it led to others and more and more and more. And what happened basically was the ballparks began with just stands around a field, kind of like you might have in a high school or even junior high school field today. And then they got more and more elaborate as more and more people were coming. And they started getting covered. And then they started in the Victorian time became, you know, some of them very elaborate wooden structures, many stories high with fancy Victorian details. Sort of, you know, there were a couple of them that looked almost, anyone been to Mohonk Mountain House, you know, upstate New York, some of them actually almost looked sort of like that. Uh, almost all of those things burned down. But they were kind of cool for a while. And then came the next generation of, by then baseball was really a big deal professional sport. And these were also the years in the late 19th, early 20th century when this um, uh, slightly contrived history was being developed. Um, and there's a whole separate story about that, about how it actually was literally you know, commissioned to kind of uh, 
whitewash the history of the game and make it seem like this very pure, virtuous American thing that came out of rural America, because we all know that cities are evil and the country is good, right? That, 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 so that whole Ameri long-standing American myth. Anyway, in the uh, early 20th century, fireproofing, steel, concrete, all became more common, and they entered ballparks as well. And we had uh, some of the very earliest, uh, like Forbes Field in Pittsburgh and Scheib Park in Philadelphia, which is maybe the greatest of the very early ones from 1909. It later became Connie Mack Stadium and then was torn down in 1970. But, um, you know, then they, they got more and more elaborate, and that's, in many ways, was the golden age of many of the greatest ballparks. We still have two survivors from that period, Wrigley in Chicago and Fenway in Boston, and, uh, but we've lost many, 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 many more. Um, and then they, there was oddly, almost nothing happened in the 1920s because almost all the cities that had major league teams had built something until a team in New York that did not have its own ballpark but essentially rented space from another team. That was a certain team that rented space in the polo grounds. To mention the Giants. I'm, no, I'm not afraid. I'm actually, I, I'm sort of building up to the, okay. the, 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 the Yankees um, were renting in the polo grounds. They did not have their own ballpark. And then they hired a certain man by the name of Babe Ruth, and they started selling more tickets than their landlords. And the Giants were not very happy, and the Giants said, no more, you've got to build your own ballpark. And so they went and built Yankee Stadium in 1923. The house that Ruth built. house that Ruth built. Oh, quite literally, in fact, it, because right. that was what caused them to need their own ballpark. And that was the only ballpark built in the 20s. Everything else had happened. But then there was a whole other wave in the 50s and 60s after World War II that was mostly suburban places, uh, what I refer to as the concrete donuts, many of them sitting in acres of parking. and. Then, of course, comes Camden Yards in Baltimore. We'll, I'm sure, come back to that in 1992, returning to the city. And the whole point of the book is really to say that all of these things kind of track American urbanism. They show you, they mirror what our whole culture was thinking about cities. We can read all of that through baseball. You know, it, one of the issues in, in American politics today is people talk about the 1%. Right. and how the rest of the populace is kind of excluded or discriminated against yes. or screwed or whatever. And yet you talk in your book about baseball in the beginning was for the 1%. It, well, there were those who wanted it to be for the 1% and those who didn't. I would more say that the tension between these two things that we see today, you see all the way through the history of baseball. There were many, many teams. Brooklyn was one of the real birthplaces of baseball, not the only one, but one of the many ones, and there were many, many different local teams, often in neighborhoods, many of them made up of working class people, sometimes even, you know, f just like a, you might have now, today, a softball team associated with a business. They were, there were factories that had their own baseball teams and so forth, and neighborhoods and so forth. But then there was this press, I think some of the same people who were trying to rewrite the history and make it more rural to make it a somewhat more elite sport. 
and felt that the um, presence of all these immigrants, both playing and among attendees, was kind of making it a little too raucous and down market. And the issue of decorum, we think that's new today, all the way through the history of baseball. It existed, and in fact, the National League was created deliberately to set a sort of higher tone originally, and when the National League was first created, there were no Sunday games permitted. You, know, you were supposed to be in church on Sunday, not doing anything as vulgar as playing baseball. And they did not allow the sale of alcoholic beverages. Now, there was a rival league called the American Association that was known colloquially as the Beer and Whiskey League <laughs> because they, in fact, not only did they permit Sunday games and the sale of alcohol, they actively encouraged it. The, one of the leaders there was, uh, I talk about in the book, was a guy in St. Louis who um, owned the local tavern and bought the St. Louis Browns largely because he thought that would help him sell more beer, which indeed it did. And so the, the rivalry between these two leagues and the American Association it was not what we now know as the American League. It actually eventually, because of mismanagement or incompetence or because its owners were too drunk most of the time to know what they were doing, who knows why, but it kind of fell apart and was absorbed by the National League, but ultimately the National League, even though it took it over, had to give up most of its ridiculous precepts and adopted more of the loose practices of the association. In recent, more recent years, you talked about how postmodernism mm -hmm. affected the look and feel of ballparks. Right. Explain. Sure. Jumping way ahead, if we look at what I call the concrete donuts as representing kind of modernism, and you know, those in this audience probably know that best from Shea Stadium, but also RFK in Washington and Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia and so forth. Those, they were not the best examples of modern architecture by f any means. Nevertheless, they kind of represented a kind of big, harsh, brutal quality. And a lot of forces in architecture in the 80s were kind of pushing back against that all across the board. And again, baseball just kind of does what the rest of the culture does. And so there was a lot of pressure to try to make things a little more user-friendly, people-friendly, fit in more, connect more to what people liked in history. And the first real example of that was a small minor league park, one of the few minor league parks I actually talk about in the book, that was originally called Pilot Field in Buffalo. Really beautifully sit, sit right in downtown near the waterfront, fit into everything around it, had a little bit of a feel of a little Wrigley or something like that, very welcoming, nice place. And then the great revolution though was a few years later in Baltimore, when by amazing good luck, there was a combination of management and an owner of the Baltimore Orioles who wanted something very different, and they did not buy into the fallacy, and this was another part problem with the concrete donut era, was it was based on the fallacy that it's a very good idea to put football and baseball together in the same ballpark. In fact, same stadium. In fact, uh, it en ends up screwing both of them, really, because their needs are really not so similar. And football is much bigger. Football is better, you know, done in an elongated space. Right. 
you, it's better to see football from high, better to see baseball from low. All, baseball intimacy matters a lot, uh, does not matter at all in seeing football well and so forth. So they wanted to build a baseball-only ballpark, and they wanted it very traditional. The uh, president of the Orioles in those days was Larry Lacchino, who grew up in Pittsburgh and as a child went to Forbes Field, and he said all his memories were shaped by that. The owner was a New York investor named Eli Jacobs, who had grown up in Boston and had the same feelings about Fenway, and had also gone to Yale and studied architecture, not professionally studied architecture, but you know, like, like a lot of good Yale students, he went to Vincent Scully's class and learned a lot about it and appreciated it all through his life. So you suddenly had And what about the woman they brought in? Then the third part of that trio, exactly, was this wonderful woman named Janet Marie Smith, who was a young architect in New York who loved baseball. And I think she was tired in her job or something because she wrote a letter to Larry Lacchino saying, uh, I hear you're building a new ballpark. Do you need somebody on staff to help you you know, in your relations with the, you know, be the go-between with the outside architect and so forth. And he had not even intended to have such a person. He saw the letter when his assistant gave it to him and said, I've drafted a, you know, form rejection letter. And he said, wait a minute, maybe that's not such a crazy idea. Maybe I should meet this woman. He calls her in. He's a little nervous, though, about how much she knows about baseball. And he calls her in for a meeting and says, well, I, I can see from your resume you know architecture, but I need to know how familiar you are with baseball. Tell me, what league has the designated hitter? And she said, I've never been so insulted by a question in my life. <laughs> and so he said, you're hired. And she then not only was for many years the vice president and in-house architect person for the Orioles, but her entire career since then has been based on baseball. She went with Larry Lacchino to some subsequent ballparks, including helping, he became the CEO years later of Boston Red Sox, and he, she was helpful in restoring Fenway Park. Uh, she is now the executive vice president in charge of planning for the LA Dodgers and oversaw the restoration of Dodger Stadium. So, and she goes around the country sort of talking about baseball parks. Her, um, she's one of those people who've been actually doing the ideas. She's kind of the Johnny Appleseed of good stadium design around the country. And so she's kind of been doing what I'm writing about in the book. Let's talk about a bias that uh, runs through your book. You have a rooting interest mm -hmm. for Ebbets Field, Fenway right. Park, right. Wrigley, right. and later Camden Yards. Describe yes. what? Um, I mean that in a positive sense. No, no, I was about to say, bias makes it sound like somehow I'm a little... I did that for drama. Okay, okay, good, good, okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, I like the good stuff, yes, yes. Well, all of those early ballparks had, first, a quality of intimacy. And, you know, you felt close to the action. They were very special places. They were deeply enmeshed in their neighborhoods. People walked to them or took the subway. It was a different kind of experience. I mean, they, and they were a funny combination of funkiness and sort of grandeur at the same time. Those are two qualities that almost never go together in architecture. I mean, funkiness is this and grandeur is there, but, you know, Ebbets Field or any of the great classic ballparks really did somehow magically merge funkiness and grandeur. And, and I, I'm so intrigued by that 
I've always been intrigued anyway by things that meld opposites in some way, and I like that quality in those places. Camden Yards was the first time in the modern era somebody said, you know what, these are like really good places. We screwed it up badly in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s even. Maybe we should start trying to learn from these things and pick up what we can. Now, there's an important distinction, though, that, that I think has to be made. They're not all the same. Camden Yards has all of the amenities of a more modern ballpark, but the feel of a more traditional one. And I think that was part of the genius behind it was that they were able to sort of do that. I mean, to be fair, you know, the old ballpark were, I mean, they were wonderful and we now romanticize them and I'm, you know, I romanticize them, as you just said, as much as anybody. The reality is, however, that, you know, they, um, they were cramped, the aisles were narrow, they were too steep, the seats were uncomfortable, there were never, ever, ever enough bathrooms, <laughs> there were not enough places to eat, all that stuff. I mean, the same way that, I don't know what they were thinking in those days, but I mean, you guys have all been to Broadway theaters, you know, think of how many bathrooms they had there, you know, it was never enough. The lobby was the size of this table, you know, all that stuff. So similarly, those early ballparks that we love so much really were awkward and cramped in many ways. And it was the brilliance of Camden Yards to be able to bring forward into our time that feeling of a classic old traditional ballpark and yet have more amenities that a modern audience would expect. And there's one other key thing that they picked up from the old ones, much more important than any cutesy little details and, and brickwork and stuff like that. It was the idea that it's a little bit eccentric, a little bit uneven, asymmetrical. The, that great warehouse, that the old railroad warehouse that is adjacent to the stadium, keeping that in right field and turning it into offices for the team and other stuff was a brilliant, brilliant gesture, partly because it made it a little more eccentric, and it was eccentricity in a lot of those classic ballparks that marked them. But it's also, as you say in the book, it's being part of the city. Absolutely, for public totally. transportation. Totally, totally. I felt that so much, just the other day, actually, I was in Baltimore to do an event for this book, and um, there was no game that day, but. I had a little time and I walked from the train station to Camden Yards, which I hadn't done in years, and it was so wonderful. You just walk, walk through downtown Baltimore and sort of up a little hill and then suddenly kind of there you are at the ballpark. So here you are, you write about the revelation of Camden Park and, and return to the future in a way. What yeah. impact has it had subsequently on other stadiums? Huge impact, huge impact. It really, in fact, I would go so far as to say it changed stadium design more dramatically than any other single building has changed any other like building type. I mean, all building types evolve and change. You know, hospitals, airports, schools. I can't in any of those other categories think of like one thing that turned at 180 degrees. But Camden Yards really did that for ballparks. Nobody after that would build a big, heavy, concrete thing anymore. Nobody would build combined football, baseball stadium anymore. Nobody would, you know, it all, it all became like that in different ways. I mean, you know, the, the one that followed closest on Camden Yards was Cleveland, where the All-Star game will be played this week. It's now called Progressive. That's a little different. It's a little more modern in some of its architectural details, but the ideas are all the same. And they were trying to make it feel more Cleveland-like with some, like, steel girders and stuff 
to make you think of the big bridges in Cleveland. The idea that it should each be distinctive is really itself important and pick up on some tone of a city. And so just about everything has changed since then. The, you know, some of them, the one difference from Camden Yards is, of course, some ballparks since then have had uh, retractable roofs. But that's because baseball is another part of the story, has spread into climates where, you know, I don't think God meant Major League Baseball to be played in Texas, actually. You know, it's, sort of, it's, it's, it's a little hot, or Miami, or whatever. And so, you know, it's a little, so you can't blame them. I mean, I wouldn't want to sit in a seat in the open air in Miami for three and a half hours on an afternoon either. But, and retractable roofs are a great deal better than closed domes. So, One yeah. of the things that, that the concrete donut does provide yeah. are tailgate parties, yes. which help create a sense of community among right. football fans. Right. Why don't we have tailgate parties at That's baseball? interesting. Well, you know, I think that's a really, really good question. But first part of the answer has to be because tailgating is part of the culture of football and not baseball. I assume it's because football grew big in the post-war era when everybody was doing everything in cars. It fits a suburban world more naturally. It's why, by the way, the concrete donut era was very much connected with the rise of football also and the fact that those buildings worked more easily for television than something old like Ebbets Field. And, you know, tailgating was not a part of baseball because when the culture of baseball really developed in the earlier years of the 20th century, people were coming to ball games either on foot or by public transit mostly. And only a handful would come by car. You know, one of the other interesting parts of the history is how in many, many cities like North Cleveland, Cincinnati, Philadelphia, it was very common for the ballpark to be actually owned by, or the team, be owned by the owner of the streetcar company. Um, in the same way that that guy in St. Louis who had the tavern thought it would be really good to own a baseball team because he could sell more beer, there were a lot of early streetcar companies that owned ball teams and built stadiums because that would give a destination at the end of the streetcar line that they could actually encourage people to use the streetcar and it would develop business for them. Put on your anthropologist that. How would you describe the difference between a baseball fan versus a football fan versus a basketball fan? Wow, that's a really interesting question. Um, the first thing I would say, which I know sounds like I'm trying to wiggle out of the question, is that you, I'll it's, come back to you. It's too hard. It's too hard to generalize because you know they're just such big things. I mean, there's so many kinds of baseball fans. I mean, there are those. Baseball fans who are obsessive about statistics and can tell you who played in the 1934 World Series and what their batting averages are. And then there are the baseball fans who kind of just wax eloquent about, you know, how baseball is a metaphor for everything about America, which gets a little tiresome. And then there are the baseball fans who just, you know, like the game and enjoy the pace of it and so forth. I think, I mean, we tend to think of football fans as possibly being somewhat more aggressive and not necessarily younger, but of a wider age range. I think basketball fans definitely, you know, there's skew younger and more urban. But I don't know that you can truly make that much of it. I mean, I'm just to, to a, while I'm more of a baseball fan, I'm, I'm a fan of all, I like 
all those sports, and I enjoy watching them and like to go to all of them. So uh, do I become a different person when I go into a football stadium or a basketball arena, or hockey, for that matter? I mean, they're all a little bit different, but there's also so much overlap, and I worry about characterizing them on the basis of the most extreme caricature. You know, for example, I mean, you could say, you know, hockey fans are aggressive, and it's like the character of hockey the caricature of hockey players getting into fights all the time. Hmm, it's not entirely fictitious, but it's, it's, it's wrong and extreme, I think. It doesn't really tell you the full story. So here you are, Paul. You spent all this time visiting ballparks, uh, grounding right. yourself in the history of baseball, right. in the love of baseball. Right. What was the biggest surprise for you at the end of this process of reporting you did? Biggest surprise, and there were many. Let me think. What? Uh, I, it's funny. They're, they're hard now to remember because this goes back a couple of years to the heart, the heart of the research, really. Um, I think, I think the biggest surprise was really in realizing that this game. Um, well, no, I, I actually no. I think I have a new bigger surprise now that I think of it. Actually, it was when I first conceived of the book. I thought that. Ballparks fell into three general kind of mega generations or categories, which are the three I mentioned in when you asked that other question about just kind of recapping the history. You know, the early stuff that was all very integrated into history, the post-war stuff, which is the, you know, suburban concrete donuts, and then beginning with Camden Yards, the reintegration into the city and how those things reflect the whole culture's attitude towards cities. In fact, there were surprises at both ends of that. When I started the book, I thought the really interesting stuff starts with Fenway Park and that whole period and Ebbets Field and all. And I'll write you know, probably some boring beginning and I'll, I'll suffer through it and write one quick chapter about that stuff. And then I discovered there was this whole amazing, rich history of all these Victorian wooden stadiums and all this other stuff that... Um, and and that there were so many social issues and economic issues and issues of social stratification um, and, you know, and, and race. We talk about the racial issue in baseball as only in terms of who was playing on the field and Jackie Robinson and so forth. But in fact, you know, there were stadiums in which the seating was also segregated and the fans were segregated and, and it plays into things as recent as uh, Tiger Stadium and why Tiger Stadium wasn't saved, uh, even though it could have been saved, but why it wasn't, I think, was largely because the African-American community in Detroit did not feel welcome for so long there because Walter Briggs, the owner of the uh, Tigers, was one of the more racist of Major League Baseball owners, and the African-American community in Detroit did not feel particularly welcome historically there and so by the time it was there was interest in a new ballpark, African-Americans held the power in Detroit politically at that point. And they felt the people wanting to preserve it were a bunch of old white fans from the suburbs. And they said, why don't we have something new? And, you know, we, we just didn't have a nice new building in Detroit. What do we need to save that old stupid thing for, essentially? And so it, it plays into all sorts of other things. But the other part of the surprise I was going to talk about the whole other end of um, the history, which is the newest generation of ballparks or the newest developments where 
team ownerships are now trying to control the world outside the ballpark, outside the gate. And we see that most dramatically in Atlanta, where the team left its old ballpark, bought 60 acres on a freeway outside the city, and has developed what's essentially a theme park, like a little Disneyland of make-believe city with a, with a new Atlanta Braves ballpark at the head of it. But we even see that in Chicago, where the current owners of the Cubs, who have done a mostly really good job of restoring and improving Fen uh, right, Wrigley Field without destroying its basic nature, have bought property around it and are sort of expanding their reach. And it's becoming, Wrigleyville is becoming a little more generic. It's not terrible, it's, it's okay, but it's a little more generic. St. Louis, again, where a very decent new Bush Stadium was opened a few years ago, the site of the old one, is being converted into what they're calling Ballpark Village, where the team ownership is, has built a museum of the Cardinals, has a lot of bars and restaurants, and is now even building some condominium apartments so you can live at the ballpark. You know, it, better than if they'd done what Atlanta did and picked up and moved to the suburbs and built a theme park. It's all in downtown St. Louis. Somebody was going to develop that land anyway. It's all in my view, kind of okay. On the other hand, it's a little corporate and a little generic and a little less what I would ideally want. But to weave my way back to your question, which I'm afraid I've gone off on tangents of tangents. Interesting one. But, thank you. But the surprise was this whole fourth generation of the city as, the ballpark as theme park. And I think the last chapter of the book is basically called the ballpark as theme park or something like that. And seeing how that kind of is the new direction. Let me ask a final question and, and ask you to prepare any questions you have for Paul. Let's assume I was baseball commissioner and I live I in my I wish you little, were. No, I, I wish I wasn't, but, uh, and, and I live in my little world. Right. And, I, and I'm really worried, Paul. I mean, you've, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're outside yeah. of my bubble and right, you've right. looked at baseball and I'm worried. I'm, my TV revenues are not right. rising the way they are right. in other sports. Fans are, are going away. People say the game is too slow. Maybe you should do a seven inning rather than right, nine right, inning game. Right, right. Tell me, Paul, what should I do? <sighs> well, Commissioner, um, the, the truth is I don't know. I, I do think some of, the th some of the things that are being done are not so good. I was at Shea, the, I'm, God, what Freudian stuff. I was at City Field the other day, and I have to say, the insanely loud rock music, which is so loud when it plays that uh, you can't talk to the person you came to the game with, does not make you want to be there. And it made me think, you know, if we were sitting at home watching it on television, we could actually talk to each other. So I don't see how that's going to get people there. The pace of the game, you know, is an issue. And I hope there can be ways to address that without going all the way to, you know, I mean, it's, it's in the nature of baseball that it is not played against a clock, and, and I think you destroy something fundamental to it. Uh, it's, it's very important to remember that the game is, theor is played in both indefinite space and indefinite time, and no other game is that way. I mean, you know, football, basketball, hockey, soccer, lacrosse, they are all played in very defined space and absolutely defined time. And baseball's indefinite space, indefinite time is critical to what it is. However, whether there's a way to, I mean, I'd rather lose an inning 
than change the fundamental nature of it if, if it comes to that. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, there's a rather good little book that came out recently by a, a, an excellent writer named Susan Jacoby called Why Baseball Matters that is in this series that Yale Press does where Actually, I wrote a book called Why Architecture Matters. It's part of it. But anyway, Why Baseball Matters. And I'm mentioning it because she tries to address this in a really conscientious way, but at the end of the day, doesn't really have much to offer except hope. And, but, what she, but the cover, is, this is an amazing cover that has a photograph, I don't remember what ballpark, but of the crowd, you know, these stands filled with people. And there's a guy sitting there holding an iPhone, watching the game on his iPhone while he's physically there, which sort of sums up a big part of the problem, I, I would say. It's a, a nice book, but again, you know, even she, who tried to write this to address this, couldn't really, in the end, answer it. So thank you, Paul. I'm, I think I'm going to leave my job as commissioner. Well, I... I, I thank, you. thank you. Brilliant book. Thank you all. Thank you all. Thank you, Ken. Thank you.